It's a good song, isn't it? That's from some friends of ours, uh, My Soul Among Lions. By the way, My Soul Among Lions sounds about right, doesn't it, for the nature of the Christian life? And uh, it's from the Psalms as well, but they have taken on the monumental task of trying to put all of the Psalms to new words in song. And uh, I would commend it to you. In fact, I asked our worship team recently. I said, uh, hey, I need some new music to listen to, you know, to get on my phone. I, I'm just old enough that I never made the transition from CD players and radios in my car to, like, a phone. And so I don't have that much music on my phone. And now my CD players and radios never work. And so... All I've got is my phone, so I kind of need to come into the 21st century, I guess. And I asked them, hey, I need, some, <laughs> I need some new and good music to listen to. And it was kind of depressing. <laughs> Their answer was kind of depressing because they're like, there isn't any. I mean, that was a summary. I mean, they said a little bit more than that, but not much more than that. And... You know, I already knew that our, our music has really died and our worship of the Lord Jesus has died. And they said even the songs with good, you know, even the songs that have joyful lyrics are written with depressing music. <laughs> and uh, for the most part, the songs are, have no substance whatsoever. So I got no help from our worship team. That's the moral of this story. So I'd come into you, my soul among lions. The first thing they joked was, have you ever heard of my soul among lions? <laughs> well, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 22. Really glad that you're here this morning to study this passage of scripture and this very... I don't even know what the word is to describe it. One commentator called it the mysterious agony of Christ. The mysterious agony of Christ. I have titled the message, What's in the Cup? What's in the Cup? I'm going to see Jesus is going to say, Remove this cup from me. Well, why? What's in it? What difference does it make? And... J.C. Ryle said this passage, this is a passage that you approach with maybe a greater sense of needing to remove your sandals because you're standing on holy ground maybe more than most or maybe more than any other place in scripture. Of course, I'm not trying to say that you know, other scripture is not the inspired word of God. You understand what I'm saying. They don't all stand equally in every respect. And this moment in history is, well, if you would this morning, would you stand with me as we read our text of scripture this morning? It's Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin in verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, 
did you lack anything? Of course, he's referencing when he sent them out on their mission to preach the kingdom of God and to repent. They said they lacked nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. You know, all I'm going to say about this particular section is the disciples are very dense. And they can't get that Jesus is talking about the conflict that's going to ensue for the people of God post his death and resurrection. And he's not talking about uh, leading into physical war with swords. He's talking about the spiritual battle and spiritual enemies they will face as the gospel marches on in the world. I mean, it's silly. Look, Lord, here are two swords. We're going to conquer the world with our two swords. (laughs) Jesus says, it's enough. Verse 39, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Father, through my weakness and our weakness this morning to expound the glory of our dear Lord Jesus Christ, get glory for yourself and make something of these minutes we have together. Do not let your word return void in our hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm mindful, um, I think you know, I'm mindful of the trials of our church. I'm mindful of the you know, great burdens and weights that you all are carrying. They take many shapes and forms. And, um, life is just not easy in a sin-cursed world. It's just not so much of our journey here is uh, really to build hope for the life to come. It's really to build hope for the life to come. And in, and in some sense, even 
despise uh, the life that we have here uh, for the glory that will be revealed to us. And, but I'm mindful of your weakness. You know? And I'm like the Apostle Paul, who is not weak? And I am not weak. And there's many ways to think about the trials you face. And, and uh, one of the questions that I have for you is, what is most needful? What is most needful today? What is most needful for you today? And, and I don't mean that for you to answer it now. What I mean for you is to consider the question. What is most needful for you. And there are a lot of things that could be said. There are a lot of truths that could be given in regards to the nature of uh, the burdens that are weighing you down currently and the sins that are entangling you and the um, being sinned against that's entangling you or the bittersweet providence that God has and is, ta- and is taking you through. But I want to remind you of something that has tremendous application to the nature of the trial you're facing, even though we don't think about it like this. And it's the centrality of what Christ is doing right here and experiencing right here in Gethsemane. And this isn't really even going to be a message about your trials. It's not even going to really be a message about your trials. But what I want you to see is the thing that is absolutely most needful as you need salvation from the wrath of God. You need salvation from the wrath of God. And if you have salvation and you have fled the wrath of God, then that will lighten every earthly trial. Because you will stop thinking in earthly ways. You'll stop thinking in worldly ways, and you'll stop thinking just according to your passions and just according to your wants and desires here and what, what needs fixed and who needs to treat you differently. And you'll stop thinking about merely the responsibilities you're carrying that are great as a man, as a woman, as a father, as a mother, as a laborer. And you will see that whatever I walk through in the journey of this life, if I have salvation from the wrath of God, then I have absolutely everything I need. And God has been merciful to me. And these trials are momentary light afflictions. And even if they are the discipline of a loving Father in heaven, I can bear up under them because he's already been so merciful to me. And if you have not salvation from the wrath of God, then I hope you see as we study Christ in this moment, in this most mysterious agony, then I hope you will see him for what he and who he really is and what he really came to do. And I pray that you will flee to him. You see what it says there at the beginning of the 
passage in verse 39. And he came out. You know, he's always going into the temple to teach, and then he leaves. And then we're uh, right before he's going to be arrested and carried away for a clown trial and, and crucified. And he came out and went, as was his custom. Now think about that for a second. As was his custom. Jesus would go into the temple and teach and go back to the Mount of Olives. right? To the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. Now, what has happened? Judas has left. Judas is going to betray Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what's coming. Jesus has been telling his disciples what's coming. He's been telling his disciples, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. He's been telling them this for a long time. So now, in the moment where he's about to be arrested and go on a mock trial, and a mockery of a trial, and be crucified, he goes, he doesn't, he doesn't, he knows the mob is getting ready to come in the following passage. He knows Judas is going to accomplish his purpose and betray him. Jesus could have went on the run. Jesus could have went somewhere else so that in the middle of the night he wouldn't have been easy to find. Jesus could have decided that he was going to hide himself. But he just goes right back to the most obvious place where he can be found where Judas can lead the mob right to him. Why? Well, it's a reminder to us that everything that he's about to experience is his voluntary willingness to do so. It's his voluntary willingness to do everything that's going to be done When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he withdraws from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is Jesus praying for? I mean, what's in this cup that... Verse 44 says, "...in being in in an agony, He prayed more earnestly, and His sweat became like great drops of blood." Matthew says He was full of grief and sorrow. He's in utter and complete anguish. Fear, even. Don't be such an engineer that you can't understand the experience of human life. And when I hear that, you go, well, if that was the case, then he was sinning. I hope you men will learn to actually feel things. 
you're willing, remove this cup from me. Well, what's in the cup? I mean, this is a strange moment. Jesus came to accomplish all His Father's will. This was long planned in eternity past that Jesus would voluntarily and willingly in obedience to a Father experience what he, everything He was going to experience and die and rise again. And that He was going to be crushed. Remove this cup from me. Well, is Jesus just afraid of dying? Is Jesus just afraid of the moment where the soul separates from the body? Is that the cup that he's so afraid of? Was Jesus just in such agony because he was afraid he was going to fail to be a great moral example of self-sacrifice? You realize that that is the way a lot of people for a hundred years now have tried to understand the cross of Christ is to just say what's just a moral example of great self-sacrifice. What other great moral example of self-sacrifice have you seen in such agony that there's blood sweat dripping off their face? Well, his was just better than the rest. It's nonsense. So if it was just afraid of dying, is he in this agony because he's just afraid of dying? How would that be? How many martyrs have died peacefully? Is the fire at the stake or the noose or the... You know? They've died peacefully. With faith. So is Jesus worse than all the martyrs? Is he just afraid of dying? No. He's not just afraid of dying. Richard Baxter, one of the great Puritan pastors in history, says this agony was not from the fear of death, but from the deep sense of God's wrath against sin, which he as our sacrifice was to bear in greater pain than mere dying, which his servants often bear with peace. So what is in the cup that has our Lord in such agony that He would fall on the ground, on His face, and ask, Father, if You would be willing, remove this cup from Me. It's His wrath. It's the wrath of God. It's the wrath, the divine wrath. God's divine vengeance against sin. Against all of humanity's rebellion to live life their way. To pursue their ends. To choose their own road. To become all that they can be on their own. With all of the offense to humanity that that creates. And all of the harm it does to people. And all of the offense to God Himself. The One who made the world and gives the law for how He made to live in it. And we spurn it. And we, all we like sheep have gone astray. 
And God is in settled opposition. Settled opposition to all of it. It's His holy hatred against sin that is then poured out in divine vengeance. But it's not just a, I am starting to hate the sun. Start preaching in sunglasses. It's revulsion and disgust, but it's not just an emotional outburst like you blow up in anger at your wife or your husband or your kids. You know, the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. It's not that. It's, it's the just due of every sinner. The only reason you would ever hate this truth is because you just think very highly of yourself. It's the only reason that you would walk out of here despising what I'm telling you. It's because you're so proud of yourself. How could God ever have anger at you? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. It's because you've imagined a little God who's hardly holy and hardly just and really isn't even loving unless he meets your standard of what love is. But how could a God who loves the world not hate what is so unloving? You want a human law court when someone violates the law significantly to receive justice. But you don't want a God who gives you your just due. You want to live in the passions of your flesh and in violation of his law and make yourself and everyone else miserable around you a lot of the time. And never face justice for It's not just an emotional outburst. It is the just due of every sinner. If you could just get a glimpse of sin and of your law breaking, not by your standard, but by what the Word of God tells you. You know, if I read this, and I'm, I'm not quoting it because it's just coming to mind, but someone said, if you punched a pillow, what would be the consequence? Not much. If you punched a sibling, would there be a greater consequence? Yeah. If you punched a parent, would there then be greater consequence? What if you went further and if you punched a police officer? Do you think that would bear greater consequence? 
foot of sin was your high-handed punching of the almighty holy God. The eternal and infinite, the majestic, the righteous glory. Do you think there might be consequence? And would the wrath of God be just? Yes. What's in the cup? Well, scripture is full of examples. Psalm 11.6 Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75.8 For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So severe is this wrath of God against sin that Scripture tells us that we would rather be annihilated and just be able to uh, be crushed under great weight than to ever actually face it. They will say, rocks and hills, come fall on us. Before the wrath of God, we, we would stand before mountains and pray for avalanches of stones to come fall on us and bear the wrath of God. And so it should be. Jeremiah 25, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. And so what's in this cup for Christ? It is this wrath of God. It's the wrath of God that he fears, that has him sweating blood. He's going to receive the fire and the coals and the sulfur and the sword. And in Gethsemane, where he's in such agony, the Father has struck him with these truths unlike any other moment in his life and ministry. Jonathan Edwards in the famous sermon. I'm just trying to give you truth about the wrath of God that is your just due. And that Christ is here feeling that weight and that agony in your place. Isaiah says the Lord... has laid the iniquity of us all upon Him. Isaiah tells us it was the will 
of God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so in Gethsemane, what's happening here when Jesus is falling on the ground and saying, remove this cup from me, is, is he's beginning to experience every... If, if, you're, if all of your sin was a mountain as high as the heavens, then what Jesus is experiencing is, is the weight of one mountain after another begin to be placed upon His back for all of humanity and its wretchedness. It's the will of the Lord to crush Him. He's beginning to get a sense of that reality. O sinner, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in His sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in His eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Oh sinner, you have offended Him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did His prince. And Yet it is nothing but His hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Oh sinner, it is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. That you were allowed to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand held you up. Oh sinner, there is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking His pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending His solemn worship. Oh, sinner. Yes, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Oh, sinner, it is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of the wrath that you are held over in the hand of the God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much as against you as against many of the damned in hell. Oh, sinner, you hang by a slender thread. The flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and to burn it asunder. You have no interest in any mediator. Nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you have ever done. Nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. And every word of that is true. 
and what Christ, your great champion, is experiencing in Gethsemane is the flame finally cutting off the thread. And falling into the fire himself. The wrath of God is in the cup. Of course, Jesus, pray, remove this cup from me. What else would he say? What else would he say? Spurgeon, speaking of the anger of the wicked. God's anger towards the wicked every day. It's almost 7-11. He's angry with you this moment and always. You go to sleep with an angry God gazing into your face. You wake in the morning and if your eye were not dim, you would perceive His frowning countenance. He's angry with you even when you are singing His praises for you mock Him with solemn sounds upon a solemn tongue. He's angry with you on your knees for you only pretend to pray. You utter words without heart. As long as you are not a believer, He must be angry with you every moment. And all of that is being imputed to Jesus Christ. It's being counted unto Him. All of the anger that you deserve for all that you have done and left undone. And every thought of your heart that you wouldn't dare share with anyone here. The guilt for it all. How do you even imagine a chasm so great? between us and our God for the guilt of it all. It's all being counted to Him. Of course He would pray, remove this cup from me if you are willing. If there's any other way. If there's any other way, Father, Jesus' humanity, the sense of the weight of this. It's amazing that he didn't stay there longer, begging for the cup to be taken, and pleading and pleading and pleading for the cup to be taken. And quickly he says, But not my will, Father, your will be. The wrath of God is in the cup. 
one preacher, and I don't, you know, I hear this stuff over months and years, and I sometimes know who it's from and who it's not, and what sometimes don't exactly know what they said. So, um, but I heard one preacher one time just say that. Imagine yourself. Imagine yourself standing before a dam that was as high as the skies and as wide as the horizon, and it's holding back just oceans and oceans of water. And you're standing, you know, a mile below that dam. Just you. Nothing around you. You in this massive wall. And all of a sudden, the dam breaks loose. And the water that cuts loose out of there is of speed and mass and momentum almost beyond imagination. And it's coming directly for you. You are absolutely helpless and hopeless before it. There is nothing you can do. And in the last possible moment, the ground opens up and all of the water is drank down by that ground opening up right in front of you. And not a drop even moistens your sock. Christ is the ground. Christ is the chasm that opens up. He is the one who drinks down all of the water of the wrath of God so that there's not a drop left for you. Of course he prays, remove this cup from me. Why are we so ashamed of the judgment of God? Why are you so ashamed of it? Why do you come and think? I hope my pastor doesn't actually talk about the true justice of God this week. I brought a friend or a family member and they'll just write him off as a nut. Why are you ashamed of the judgment of God? Why do we have a gospel in the church today that has nothing of the judgment of God in it? Because pastors are completely ashamed of the judgment of God. And do you know what they're saying and what you're saying when you think like that? You're saying Christ was just merely being dramatic in the garden. saying Christ's agony here wasn't real. You're saying God is not a God who punishes sinners and Christ need not die on that tree to rescue me and every other lost soul on the face of the earth. You realize you're ashamed of the judgment of God, that you're scared of its 
sting. That there really isn't any gospel at all. Because what you need is not just your marriage to get better. What you need is not your kids to just turn out all buttoned up like you think they're going to. What your greatest need is is not your career. You have to be saved from the wrath of God. You need a Christ who goes through this agony. You need a Christ who suffers and dies a just penalty before the Almighty. met with a pastor a few years ago, and, you know, everybody's always talking about unity, 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 right? Unity, unity, unity. Why can't we have more unity? Well, we should have unity. But, I was meeting with this pastor, and he was trying to bring people together, which, you know... Who would criticize a pastor who's trying to bring people together? <laughs> we never are wise enough to ask, on what basis are we bringing people together? What is the basis for our unity as Christians to actually work together? And I was meeting with this pastor, and he was, he's a very gentle and sweet man in many ways, but he was trying to bring people together and, and, and get churches to work together and to go do various ministry endeavors. And so, uh, but I've been down this road enough times at this point in my life to just know that um, there's a lot more important things to consider than just bringing people together to go try and do things. So I asked some questions. I asked what basis are we, what is our unity? What is the basis of our unity? Well, we're just going to go do things together. You know, we're going to walk in the neighborhoods and pray, and which all sounds so appealing, appealing, right? I said, okay, you know, it's kind of like I'm, I'm all for that kind of stuff if we actually have unity. So I said, if you are going to bring together people who don't actually believe the gospel and call it Christian unity, then we don't have any unity. I said, okay. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what did Jesus come to do? And I said, Jesus came, fully incarnate, the God-man, to live a perfect life, to keep the law of God where we could not keep the law of God, to be counted sinful, guilty, in our place so that we could be counted righteousness and to endure the full penalty of the wrath of God in our place. And we entrust ourselves to a Christ by believing that that's exactly what we deserved and exactly what He did 
for us. And in that moment, right there, as soon as I said the wrath of God, he's like, well, we need to use the word, the wrath, use the wrath of God in every sentence. <laughs> no. <laughs> but we don't have a gospel if we don't understand it. And we don't have unity if we're going to bring people who proclaim to be Christ and who are so ashamed of the judgment of God and the wrath of God that they have no need of Christ and bring them together and work together and call it Christian unity. The righteous have no fellowship with the wicked. And it's worse when it's in the name of Christ. And I realized that day that pastors everywhere are just completely ashamed of the judgment of God. I don't know what they want, but they don't want a Christ in Gethsemane. They don't want a Christ in Gethsemane. And you should hate that. And the reason you should hate it is because Gethsemane is the most precious thing to our faith. This is the beginning of this, of this deep suffering of Christ where our sin is being laid on Him that He finishes on that cross. This should be the most precious thing to us. Ambrose, the church father, said it this way, I, I not only do not think that there is any need of excuse for the judgment of God, for Christ's suffering and agony in the garden. I, don't, I not only do not think that there is any need of excuse, but there is no instance in which I admire more His kindness and His majesty. For He would not have done so much for me if He had not taken upon Him my feelings. He grieved for me who had no cause of grief for Himself. And laying aside the delights of the eternal Godhead, He experiences the affliction of my weakness. I boldly call it sorrow. Because I preach the cross. For He took upon Him not the appearance, but the reality of incarnation. You know, some think Jesus was just kind of a, like a phantom body. Or a phantasmic body. It wasn't a real body. So, you know, he couldn't really experience grief and sorrow and anguish and agony like this. For he took upon him not the appearance, but the reality of incarnation. So you never let someone take away from you this example of His kindness and His majesty. That in His humanity, He is in absolute, utter agony. And in His majesty, He goes obediently to His Father, to the cross, to endure the fullness of the weight of the wrath of God and bear your pain. Remove this cup from me. I am dying for some of you to stop playing Christian cleanliness. Did Jesus not need to go to Gethsemane for you?
you had to sweat blood and bear every boulder of your wickedness for you to walk around and imagine that everyone else thinks highly of your reputation. Why do I feel so weak every day and you are so strong? Do not need a champion who bore the wrath of God for you? And if you did, why would anybody be impressed with you? And that's what you live for. That's what you live for. You live for people to be impressed with you and your cleanliness. What a charade. What a hypocrisy. It would be far better for you to say, I need a Christ in Gethsemane. What is there impressive about me? And who cares who knows? It's a lot better to humble yourself before God's mighty hand than try to impress God's almighty hand. What a burden. I don't want anybody to try to keep bearing that burden. You wonder why you're exhausted. That's why. I mean, do you not see why Jesus brought his disciples along in Gethsemane? Why did Jesus bring his disciples along? Why are they there? Why are they right there in this moment? so they can pray and not fall into temptation and surely the you know a godly disciple would actually do that <laughs> yeah i mean yeah because you bear the weight of sorrow so well that it doesn't exhaust you and puts you to sleep you know it's like so why are the disciples there i mean is there any other reason for the disciples to actually be there is it, is it because Jesus wants their sympathy in his suffering? Maybe some. But he also has angels who show up to minister to him. Was it so they could see his majesty as blood dripped from his face? Was it so they could protect him with their two swords when the mob showed up? What was it? So he could show them and us the great weakness of Jesus' best disciples. And maybe so later, they would actually feel how careless their own hearts were in that, during the moment of the agony of their Lord when he was about to be carried away to death. 
and show them their weakness further, not just that they would fall asleep in this moment, but that they had hearts that were so careless to do it in this moment. And this is exactly what we are. And we see that, you know, do you think you and a bunch of Christians down through history who you regard as heroes were stronger than this? And you think you've become one of them somehow? Or maybe you've exceeded, actually. Do you know what the reformers felt like at the end of their ministry? The greatest revival in the history of the Western world. Do you know what they felt like? They all felt like complete and utter failures. And the spread of the gospel over the last 500 years in light of that reformation is the fastest, most widespread expanse of the gospel in history, and they died so weak. And you are strong? Just give it up. Just give it up. Sometimes I can't even get out of bed till 8 o'clock in the morning because I can't sleep and life's hard. And Just give it up. Now, doesn't that just insult your pride to hear me say that? <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes I just want to tell you. I want to tell you all of my sins so you can actually embrace what normal is. But you know why I can't? Because you have too much confidence in the flesh and you're not as merciful with me as God is. Why am I so weak? And you are so strong. Do you not need Gethsemane? I just don't want anybody to take this away from me. You come to believe that you are wretched, pitiful, and poor, and that the wrath of God is owed you for your sins. And that Christ is your only hope of salvation. Because he's the one who endures the wrath of God that you deserve for you and in your place. And he does it willingly for you. I don't even know how to describe the measure of what that love is. You know, it's like there's no words for that. What's in the cup? It's the wrath of God. It's the Lamb receiving your just due and beginning to feel the weight of your iniquity being laid upon Him. Stand with me, would you? Father, I don't know what to pray. I just want to know Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. I want to know him. I want us to know him. 
I want Gethsemane to be precious to us for the work of our dear Lord. I want us to see that we deserve his agony. And he drank down the full cup. Thank you.